The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello, everyone here, and hello to people online. So, that felt a little bit abrupt for me to come out of meditation and now suddenly have to speak. (laughs) Um, So... So what I'd like to do today is to uh, bring in a perspective, an orientation on our life, on our practice, Buddhist practice, from another uh, domain, another field. And that's often can be useful because it kind of, you know, helps us to kind of see what we're doing in a new way, whether it's looking at our Buddhist practice in a new way or whether independent of that, almost looking at our own life in a new way. That's kind of the hope for this talk. And I like to think of what, that, what I'm going to point towards is um, um, the, the depth of the Dharma, but rather than thinking of the Dharma as something outside of you, um, it's the depth of your Dharma, or the depth that's potentially yours, how to understand yourself in some deep way. And the orientation I'm going to provide is a way, uh, uh, principles or a a point of view that chaplains use when they offer spiritual care. Especially here in California, uh, chaplains who work in hospitals are offering, offering spiritual care to anybody who is willing to or wants to have care from them, including people who are atheists and non-religious. And, um, and chaplains are in California are, are, even though there might be Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or Muslim chaplains, they're explicitly working in the hospital as an interfaith chaplain. So as an interfaith chaplain, you're not there to proselytize. You're not there to provide people with the meaning of life that you have from maybe your own religion. You're there to discover uh, uh, what's going on for that person in some deep way, understand them deeply. For for example, in terms of the meaning of life, uh, you might want to discover what is their understanding of the meaning of life, or in what way is the meaning of life for them been ruptured, and they're suffering. Maybe like in a hospital, there's they represent someone who's maybe going through some tremendous loss, sickness, old age. All kinds of things can happen with people in the hospital, and so it's ruptured. Maybe what was meaningful for them, what a meaningful life meant for them, being debilitated, maybe having their life radically changed overnight, and never to be the same again, and so their sense of meaning has been ruptured. And so a chaplain is there to meet that and care for that without proselytizing, without providing them with meaning. So this idea that there's these orientations that chaplain use, use to understand people deeply, 
so that they can support people deeply in times of great difficulty. And so there are five paired areas that chaplains are looking at, looking at considering people that um, I'd like to kind of present here for us today. And as you listen, and the thing I'm mostly interested in is to maybe it supports you to be able to or want to kind of look at yourself more deeply, to use these five categories to really look at how does this work for you? And not just your first answers for them, but uh, there's the art of thinking, well, that's the first answer, but, but you know, if that's true, what's deeper, what's more deeply true around the same category? And keep kind of going down deep. So I'll say, I'll list what these five categories are, five areas, they're pair, pairs of things. And uh, don't try to memorize them now, because I'll go through them slowly, and you can always go back and listen to the talk if you want to get all of them. But now just listen and see what, what, uh, what kind of seems important for you to, for yourself. So the, the, the five pairs are meaning, and purpose, agency, and um, autonomy, identity and dignity, community and kinship, healing and reconciliation. And they're kind of in a very interesting list. They're kind of progressive in some ways, or they could be seen that way. So the first, meaning and purpose. You know, the big question is, what's the meaning of life? Uh, A subset of that is, what's the meaning of your life? And, um, And I would like to propose that everyone has some sense of what their meaning of their life is, whether it's implicit or explicit, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And many people receive a sense of meaning of life, what life is about, what's important in life to do, and, and, and uh, uh, from their society, from their religions, from their family, in such an early age that people don't even know they're living that way. It's just like, you know, this is how things are. And, um, and uh, I saw that with my, my children, they were quite young, that uh, how much I was acculturating them to a certain point of view about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be a human being in relationship to other human beings. At first, I was a little bit horrified you know, to see, see how the conditioning we were doing, but it, it has to be this way. Uh, everyone has to somehow, everyone who lives in a society and a culture has to some way or other um, have a language to speak with people. And we don't, uh, and then we communicate and find our way. And, you know, it isn't that, you know, this two-year-old who's learning to speak, um, you know, uh, is being oppressed because, you know, the, the, the way English words are spelled <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, we, you know, I'm one of those people who's complained for 60 years, 70 years about this kind of an ingest. But, um, but you, know, it, you know, you just have to go along with certain things. So it, with English-speaking people, you can, give you, you can communicate. So 
things are passed on in a very early age, and I saw for myself as I started doing Buddhist practice that those layers of ways I was conditioned got uncovered. And how deeply it went, I, I can't tell you if it went all the way to the bottom, but I certainly saw a lot of ways. And that's why I so, so, so see it so well, what I was doing for my children. And so I was conscious of it, but I tried to do it responsibly and carefully and not to limit them. But still, I knew that you had to teach them language, you had to teach them how to be in a culture and in a certain way. And um, <clears throat> so, but, so what's the meaning of life? Uh, uh, some people, the meaning of life, as I said, and like in hospitals, but not many places, is unfulfilled. They think that life has a certain meaning, like to have children. And some women, some people don't have children, and their meaning is really ruptured. It's really painful because they grew up with that. That was their primary purpose, in a sense. Uh, for other people, it was to fulfill their parents' ideas of <clears throat> what kind of career they're going to have. And that was the primary meaning which operated in their life. Some people... Uh, without it being called the meaning of their life, it's, um, if you watch them, you say, wow, from all I can tell, the meaning of their life is to hate. <laughs> you know, that's all they seem to be about. And, uh, or the meaning of life is to be wealthy, to have desires and to have status. And that seems to be what their life is about. And, but it's unexamined. And if you ask them, you know, what's the meaning of your life, they might not be able to say anything deeper than that. That's the operating principle of what their life is about. And, um, but is the meaning of life to live in resentment? Is that what life is, should be really about? The purpose, and so meaning and purpose are closely related uh, many times, so the meaning gives us the orientation of what we want to do with our life, what we want to accomplish. And... Um, and so, um, you know, is, is life just about becoming wealthy? Is it, is it more about the quality of our relationships, that, that there's love and community and that we support and are engaged in? Is life about feeling fulfilled in some deep inner way that has nothing to do with material well-being and status and these kinds of things? And um, so, you know, what's the meaning? What's the purpose? And people who have no purpose sometimes find themselves disoriented, feel lost, feel like they don't fit into society, don't fit into this world. They're confused. Sometimes they're, they're depressed by it all. Some people who think some, one way, something, something of a particular, is meaningful in a particular way, and, but they can't fulfill that meaning, again, it's very challenging for them. Some people have a meaning that they thought was the purpose of life, but something happened that pulled the rug from underneath that and either they can't fulfill it or it doesn't make sense anymore. Um, some people, their, their religion they grew up with provided meaning and, and amazing meaning. The people of community, people were all, their whole meaning of life was centered around the meaning provided by their religion. But at some point they could no longer believe it or follow that. And then they were lost. Like, what do I do now? How do I find my way? So chaplains in offering spiritual care are listening for this. And they're not proselytizing, they're not telling people what it should be. Now, as a Buddhist teacher, I'm not a chaplain in that way. So for better or for worse, I'm offering Buddhist meaning and Buddhist purpose. 
Uh, and uh, but uh, often, what I try to do when I meet with people is one on one, is to listen first and foremost what the people I'm talking to want. What is their intention for their life? And then see how this practice can support that in the appropriate way. And the exception for that is I'm also listening for suffering. How is this person suffering? And, and is it there, is, do I have a role to be a mirror for that or engage them around that and to support them around that? Because some sources of meaning, some orientation around meaning and purpose cause just more suffering for themselves and maybe for other people as well. And that's one of the purposes, primary meanings that uh, I think Buddhists offer, Buddhism offers. And that is um, that one purpose of uh, human life is find liberation or freedom from suffering. This can seem to be not so grand or altruistic or something that other, other meanings could be. But it's a powerful one for Buddhists, the liberation from f- the f- freedom from suffering. And it's not the end of it all, but there might be more meanings to it. So for example, you could ask, well, that's nice for you. And when your suffering ends, then what? What's the meaning of life then? And some Buddhists will say, then, oh, the meaning of life is to help you end your suffering or to help end the suffering for the people, other people. Because part of the meaning for life is that we are related to each other and our well-being, our purpose in life is also related to the well-being of those around us. The purpose of Buddhist life is not just to end suffering, which seems like a neutral thing. It's also to thrive in a very deep way. And the Buddha didn't use exactly the word thrive because he didn't speak English. But he, there are other words that he used that are related to, the, to how what we mean by the word thrive, to live in a sense of abundance, expansiveness. And, um, and so the purpose of life is to, is to free this inner possibility. From a Dharma point of from Buddhist point of view, uh, it's the Dharma. We want to live in harmony with the Dharma, aligned with the Dharma. But the Dharma is not in a book. The Dharma is something that lives inside of us. And Buddhists, since in the West, we often say that we want to, so that you have a power, you know, a power greater than ourselves, you know, something, uh, you know, we want to be aligned to a higher power is a kind of language some people use. I think the Buddhists would say something like, I would say, yes, that's great. We do, but the higher power that we can find is within ourselves. So it's, it's not exactly us, it's not exactly you, but it's not apart from you. But it's this uh, inner movement of something that can happen when, when something is set free. Set free from what? Set free from all the restrictions that we live under, all the limitations we put ourselves under. And so this movement towards freedom from suffering is a movement that sees and feels how we limit ourselves, how we restrict ourselves, how we oppress ourselves, um, because that's suffering. And so to begin uh, seeing and feeling, oh, look at that. Not only am I suffering, but I I can feel how this is a limitation to my growth. I see how this is a, a, um, a... but not to my growth, but just limitation to how life wants to grow, how life wants to be expressed. The Dharma wants to be expressed here. 
And this thing, that higher power that's within us, is our own maturation, or this inner maturation growth set free that we're amazingly capable of to live with tremendous sense of of peace, of joy, of strength, of wisdom, that it's very hard to take personally. And so, uh, so this idea of being free from then limitations and restrictions ties into the next uh, chaplaincy orientation, and that is uh, agency and autonomy. Peop- and this means that uh, we're not living under oppression, not living under things that keep us in pr- certain kinds of prison, restricted. Autonomy, me- and, uh, autonomy means that, uh, in this context, is that other people are, you're not controlled by other people. You're not controlled by institutions that have greater power over your life than they should have. Uh, you're not um, coerced into living the way you want to live. Uh, you are not oppressed. And, but you make, can make your own choices. You can follow your own guidance to what you want to do. The representation of, of uh, you know, that represents this kind of restricted life is prison. That uh, it's awful to be in prison. So much of the autonomy is taken away explicitly. And I've met prisoners who have all this kind of ordinary autonomy taken, taken away, and they have more inner freedom than many people who come to IMC. It's remarkable to see where they find their autonomy. Autonomy about what their inner life is about, what they choose to respond to and how they respond. And they found a certain kind of freedom to make choices for themselves that you can see and feel, look in their eyes and see what they have. And um, so this idea, so uh, uh, agency, the ability to act, to not be restricted from doing what needs to be done. So for Buddhists, to have some sense, yes, it's possible to be free. It's possible to let this Dharma, onward-leading Dharma, move through me and grow. It's possible to open my heart in such a way that I can be of service to others or love others, be connected in a deep way. It's possible, but... I can't do it. Why can't I do it? Well, I have responsibilities. I can't go and retreat. I have, you know, to read the newspaper and have coffee in the morning. I can't meditate. <laughs> I have, I have no, I have no autonomy. <laughs> you know, and um, and then, of course, you know. So so then, so there's these things that keep keep us in check, and so. You know, so we don't feel like we can act, do what we want to do. I and mean, some people have responsibilities and families, and and uh, some things. Some people feel like they can't practice because they can't go on retreat because of family responsibilities. And I tell them, well, I learned maybe more about myself and the Dharma with the limitations of having raising kids than I did on in monasteries I lived in. It's a great practice. <laughs> And in terms of learning autonomy, learning agency, and where it really counts, uh, you know, for me, I learned a tremendous amount under the limitations of parenting. That uh, I wouldn't say it's like prison, but <laughs> 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 but um, 
but I do want to refer back to what I just said about these prisoners who found the freedom, right? So if the prisoners can do it in that setting, maybe I could learn something about it in, in family, you know, maybe. So, um, so then, uh, so we have purpose, um, uh, we have um, a meaning and purpose, and then agency and autonomy, and then we have um, um, ad, uh, identity and dignity. One of the ways that I understand chaplains is that they, uh, they, one of their functions of these hospital chaplains, or any chaplain, I hope, any human being, I hope, is, um, I coined a new English word, uh, because I believe English gives us that freedom. Sometimes I have loving arguments with friends about this. You can't do that. Um, uh, ch- chaplains are dignifiers. You see, I have enough autonomy and agency that I can make up a new word. <laughs> Dig- dignifiers. And, um, and so they dignify other people. They bring out the dignity in people and respect them and honor them and value them. People in our society, not enough people in our society are honored, are respected in deep ways. And sometimes when people are under challenge, like in tremendous difficulty in hospitals, their dignity has been taken away. And chaplains come, and that's one thing chaplains offer. Identity and dignity, identity and worth. And identity is a kind of an awkward thing for Buddhists to talk about, uh, sometimes, unfortunately, because uh, there's been a long history of this teachings of no self, and you're not supposed to have an identity, let go of identity, let go. And it's true, there's a tremendous amount of letting go of self-definition, of holding on to ideas of self that Buddhists do, but only when the practice shows us that the identities we're living under restrict us, limit us. Some identities don't do that. Some identities actually do the opposite, that kind of give us more space. So uh, someone who is a, calls themselves, identifies, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. Well, if they come and tell me that, as a Buddhist teacher, I say, great. <laughs> I'm not going to take that away from you. That, that teaches me, it tells me that you have certain values and purpose and meaning for your life of what you want to do and with your life that I want to support. And if there's some attachment to being the practitioner, which then I'm not worried about it because the practice, the mindfulness, um, the Dharma will show you sooner or later where those limitations are. And so it all, it all comes out in the wash. And, but identity is very important. Identity know, means you know where your place is in society. You know how you fit in society, how to find your way in society. You know your place in your family. You know your role. And roles are maybe sometimes like hats you wear, you take on and off. But still, you know what hats you're wearing at any given time. You know something about yourself. You know yourself well. You have confidence in yourself. You have understanding of what makes you work. You understand what drives you, your your values, your meanings, your purposes. Uh, you have a set, clear sense of how you live in relationship to other people. 
and how to interact with it and how to care for yourself in relationship to other people. All this fits under the title of identity. And many people are deeply challenged around identity. Some people are challenged when the identity they had seemingly has been removed from them or lost. Or, you know, so some people, when they retire, feel completely lost because that role, that identity is no longer there. And, um, and so chaplains listen. Where is that, is that, you know, where is that the suffering that people have? And how do I care for that and meet that? And support people. I can't provide anybody with identity, but uh, a chaplain listens to the suffering at least that's there, because and then sees what can support this person to find a new identity. What can support the person to let go of the identities that have been harmful for them, no longer needed. So, meaning and purpose, agency and autonomy, identity and dignity. And Buddhism is a lot about dignity. The, some of you know that the, the people who attain some degree of liberation in Buddhism are called the noble ones. You know, that's kind of highlights. So this is an important movement, direction we're going. And then there's a community and kinship. And I think most people, for most people, we understand how important community is, family, friends, uh, our tribe, our village, uh, the people around us that, you know, uh, help our mirrors to help us understand ourselves, people who help us feel like we belong, that we're connected, that we're not alone. Um, the, many, many of the ways in which we as human beings grow and develop um, as children is clearly in relationship to other people, clearly in relationship to our parents. And we're, we're wired for that relationship to e- affect us for a lifetime. And if that something goes askew with the parent-child relationship when the child is young, it can be challenging for that child the rest of their life. You know, we call it sometimes attachment disorders nowadays. And if something goes well in that relationship, um, the child feels secure in the world by feeling security in their family in the first five years they're alive. Then they go into, they feel, oh, the world is a place it's okay to feel secure in. And so it makes a huge difference. And so, you know, we, we, we learn from each other, we influence each other, we're influenced by each other, we, uh, it touches something very deep inside of us. When I was walking down here to teach today, uh, in a, a somewhat near, near my house, is a, is a house that I've walked by a lot, and uh, it's been being remodeled for years. And I, 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 it feels like almost like it's a hobby house for someone. Or <laughs> they seem to work on the weekends or evenings, and they come with all their buddies. You know, it seems like just a nice time. And, and they seem to be doing a really nice job with this sm- relatively small wooden house. So I've kind of admired what they're doing. And, but this morning, there was someone with a uh, pickup truck kind of looked like they were going to do some work or something. And um, so the first time I said, hello. They said, are you working here? And the person was a little bit cautious. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> so I said, well, I've been admiring this for years. And it turned out that he was the owner and he's been doing it for years. And, and, uh, and so we had a delightful conversation. I appreciated his work. I really appreciated how nice they'd done the house and appreciated his work and what he did. And then finally he asked me, what do you do? 
So, so that's a little bit of a you know personal question, right? And, and so I thought, well, what do I say? You know, what is this? Because sometimes when I've told people what I do here in Redwood City, like when Little League with my kids, they're, they're the Little League parents. As soon as I tell them, they walk away. <laughs> Buddhist, te- Buddhist teacher, right? Or so I said, I'm a meditation teacher because that's a little bit safer. You know, I. Uh, I, I could say I'm in entertainment. <laughs> and so, um, when I found a meditation chair, he was like, wow, you know, said, you know, uh, so I can't, you must sit still or something. And, uh, and so we talked for a while and it was kind of nice. And I, and, and I told him that I'd been a Buddhist monk for many years and, and, um, and he said, you really must know how to be still. I can't sit still at all. I have to always be active. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I can be still, but I love act- activity too. Um, I mean, it's, you know, doing this kind of work you do is so much fun and it's engaging and I love it to do that kind of work. And I used to be a farmer, I said. And, and um, so what was I doing in that conversation? So a number of things were happening, community and kinship. First one that happened was I was walking down the street and I saw this man there, and, and I thought, well, I can't stop and talk to him. I want to come down here and be here early at IMC so that I can be in community and kinship with some of you. <laughs> and, um, but I could feel that the, re- the resistance I had to stopping, the sense of like there's some other place to go, didn't feel right. That's where the suffering was. That's where the strain was. I didn't want to live with that. That didn't seem right. So what happens when I let go of it? Hi, are you working on this house or something? I just kind of just felt like the most natural thing in the world then, that was the person of the moment to be in community with and kinship with. There was some commonality perhaps because of seeing that house for years, thinking about it. Just, you know, he's only about 10 houses away from me. And um, so it's part of my neighborhood. And um, so it, it, is that the meaning of life for me to connect to people in community? I don't know if I would say that. Is it the Dharma in me that's coming forth and being expressed? I would say yes. That's just life coming forth in me. And um, and then uh, I was in community with him, and then I felt kinship with him. When he said he's you know has a trouble sitting still, but he likes being active, I loved it. You know, I thought that's, that's a beautiful thing. I felt more connected to him, and it's a kind of kinship. And I wanted to share that sense of kinship with him, with a sense that I too like to be active and to do work. And you know, it felt wonderful to have that wonderful connection. So, by the time I was ready to leave, he offered me his hand to shake it, and it was felt a wonderful little contact there, and you know, a little friendly engagement. And so community and kinship is something that is a wonderful part of human life. And that gets ruptured sometimes, it gets broken, it gets challenged. And, and each of these five areas uh, relate to each other. They influence each other or connect to each other. And each of these five, any one of these five areas can be broken for people, can be challenged, could be uh, deficient in people's lives. Each of these five areas are ways in which Buddhist practice comes alive for us. 
one of the one of the answers to the uh, to the question, what's the meaning of life? Is from I would say from a Buddhist point of view, the meaning of life is to be alive, is to live, and the why that's a significant answer, and uh, rather than you know kind of avoiding the question, is that uh, Buddhists when we do this meditation practice, we understand intimately, personally, acutely, how much we block our life how much we restrict our living, how attachments, how clinging, how fear, resentment, even desires that we have actually limit us. Rather than having un- unfettered desires to use your, your credit card as much as you want, is actually a limitation. To be the most wealthiest person in this planet and live just for that purpose, probably it means a truncated life. Something is blocked and restricted. And anyway, whatever, whether that's true or not, we can, to the degree to which we interfere with our life being lived fully and freely, <clears throat> that's something we can feel. What happens when our, when the, when our life is being lived fully, <clears throat> it's uh, then we c- can feel then we can feel like this is good, this is being alive in a way that's satisfying and deeply meaningful. There's the, I don't know if it's a study or whether it's a thought experiment, but I've read about um, uh, comparing two people on an assembly line doing the same mundane assembly line routine. One person is bored. And the bored person, their life energy is, gets drained from them. They the other person sees it as a game, how fast they can do it, how well they can do it, and just completely absorbed in doing it, and enters into a flow state. And a flow state is a state of, of, of well-being, of joy, of engagement, of self-dropping away in a certain way. And it just feels so good to be in the state. It doesn't matter that it's a mundane, boring activity from the external point of view. Just being alive is so great. So this idea of the purpose of life is to be alive works if you believe that the Dharma, the deep, our deep self, has wisdom and love and care and community as part of it. And that's what we can discover when we do this practice. In fact, there's a tremendous resource within us that can provide us with meaning agency, identity, dignity, community, kinship, and, oh, the last one, healing and reconciliation. So some people, that's their primary need, a chaplain C, uh, in the hospital or other places, that all the other needs are what they are, but the limiting factor for the person is healing and reconciliation. And uh, something is broken. So, and healing is usually with reconciliation with other people. Healing is with something else, with oneself, or with what one takes as being the purpose of life, or the meaning of life, or that which is ultimate and sacred. And um, so that's the task. Mindfulness can have a powerful role for that. Mindfulness is a healing movement to feel and see where the break is.
and allow the Dharma to move through us in such a way that a tremendous amount of healing can happen from the Dharma being allowed to move through us. The heart knows how to heal. And so we're allowing that heart to heal through this practice. So I'll go through and name them again. Maybe as I name them this time, why don't you see if any one of them might be kind of the one that's more interesting for you to spend time considering. Meaning and purpose, agency and autonomy, identity and dignity, uh, community and kinship, healing and reconciliation. We could say these are needs we all have. And is any one of them a need that is more, you say, oh, today, that's the one that seems up for me. Or it's just the whole catastrophe. <laughs> so, um, so thank you for listening to this. And I hope this kind of gave you a different perspective especially those of you who've been coming, listening to these talks, Buddhist talks for a long time. It's a new, a new perspective to kind of look at yourself with and, and maybe to have conversations with friends. So in about um, <clears throat> seven minutes or so, or 10 minutes, there'll be this potluck. You're all here, welcome to attend. And even whether you brought something or not, where you, it doesn't really... Please don't feel like you can't stay if you didn't bring something because that's not the kind of potluck we're at. It just bring yourself. And, um, and since we're doing a potluck, maybe it'd be nice for you to say hello to people here, uh, just to break the ice a little bit. And um, maybe just say hello, and then you can go to say hello to someone, or <clears throat> maybe find out a little bit more about them. Uh, or maybe um, tell them which of these, <clears throat> what you thought of this talk in terms of your own life, or which one of these five bears was most interesting for you or something, as you wish. But if you can kind of turn to two people next to you so that no one's kind of left alone, kind of looking, well, who's going to talk to me?